Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Michael Beerer. This week, December 28, 2023, we feature articles on dual or single antiplatelet treatment up to 72 hours after stroke. Nersevimab for prevention of RSV hospitalization in infants. Sparsentan in focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Transfusion strategy in patients with myocardial infarction and anemia and the effect of alcohol reduction on cancer incidence. A review article on wearable technology in clinical practice for depressive disorder. A case report of a woman with cough and shortness of breath. And perspective articles on community-based doulas, on a new era for research funded by the U.S. government, and on the poet as patient. Dual Antiplatelet Treatment Up to 72 Hours After Ischemic Stroke by Ying Gao from the Beijing Tiantan Hospital, China, and colleagues. Dual antiplatelet treatment has been shown to lower the risk of recurrent stroke as compared with aspirin alone when treatment is initiated early, 24 hours or less after an acute mild stroke. This trial, conducted in 222 hospitals in China, evaluated the effect of clopidogrel plus aspirin as compared with aspirin alone administered within 72 hours after the onset of acute cerebral ischemia related to atherosclerosis. 6,100 patients with mild ischemic stroke or high-risk TIA of presumed atherosclerotic cause were randomly assigned to receive combined clopidogrel aspirin therapy or matching placebo plus aspirin. A transient ischemic attack, TIA, was the qualifying event for enrollment in 13.1% of the patients. 12.8% of the patients were assigned to a treatment group no more than 24 hours after stroke onset, and 87.2% were assigned after 24 hours and no more than 72 hours after stroke onset. A new stroke occurred in 7.3% of patients in the clopidogrel aspirin group and in 9.2% in the aspirin group. Moderate to severe bleeding occurred in 0.9% of patients in the clopidogrel aspirin group and in 0.4% of those in the aspirin group. Among patients with mild ischemic stroke or high-risk TIA of presumed atherosclerotic cause, combined clopidogrel aspirin therapy initiated within 72 hours after stroke onset led to a lower risk of new stroke at 90 days than aspirin therapy alone, but was associated with a low but higher risk of moderate to severe bleeding. Anthony Kim from the University of California, San Francisco, writes in an editorial that the trial by Gao and colleagues provides evidence to support expanding the time window for dual antiplatelet therapy to 72 hours. This timing should nevertheless be interpreted as as soon as possible but within 72 hours, and still necessitates a loading dose of clopidogrel since its omission would be akin to delaying treatment. The trial also provides justification for the inclusion of patients with slightly more severe stroke symptoms than have been evaluated in previous trials, up to an NIHSS score of 5 or less, as compared with the threshold of 3 or less that had been used in some trials. 
However, this expanded inclusion criterion comes at the cost of a small but accruing bleeding risk that is roughly proportional to the duration of treatment. This bleeding signal is a reminder that the appropriate duration of dual antiplatelet therapy to balance early benefit and bleeding risk seems to be approximately 21 days, and that long-term use of clopidogrel aspirin is not recommended, given that this approach has not proved beneficial and almost certainly increases bleeding risk. The results of this trial also cannot be generalized to patients with heightened bleeding risks, such as those with a history of cerebral or systemic hemorrhage, to those with severe stroke or cardioembolic stroke, not considered to be atherosclerotic in origin, or to patients undergoing or anticipated to undergo thrombolysis or thrombectomy. In addition, there is uncertain generalization to non-Han Chinese patients, given that Han Chinese patients made up almost the entire trial population. The incremental expansion of indications for dual antiplatelet therapy that was shown in this trial is welcome. Perhaps new, more targeted antithrombotic agents on the horizon may hold promise for delivering an even more favorable balance of benefits and risks among patients with stroke. Nersevimab for Prevention of Hospitalizations Due to RSV in Infants by Simon Drysdale from St. George's, University of London. Respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, is a common seasonal cause of acute lower respiratory tract infection in young children and a leading cause of hospitalization in infants. This study assessed the safety of the monoclonal antibody nirsevimab and the effect of nirsevimab on hospitalizations for RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infections when administered to healthy infants. 8,058 infants who were 12 months of age or younger had been born at a gestational age of at least 29 weeks and were entering their first RSV season in France, Germany, or the United Kingdom were randomly assigned to receive a single intramuscular injection of nirsevimab or standard care, no intervention, before or during the RSV season. 0.3% of the infants in the nirsevimab group and 1.5% of those in the standard care group were hospitalized for RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection, which corresponded to a nirsevimab efficacy of 83.2%. Very severe RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection occurred in 0.1% of the infants in the nirsevimab group and in 0.5% of those in the standard care group, which represented a nirsevimab efficacy of 75.7%. The efficacy of nirsevimab against hospitalization for RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection was 89.6% in France, 74.2% in Germany, and 83.4% in the United Kingdom. Treatment-related adverse events occurred in 2.1% of infants in the nirsevimab group. Nirsevimab protected infants against hospitalization for RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection and against very severe RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection in conditions that approximated real-world settings.
In an editorial, Natasha Halassa from Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Nashville, writes that the findings in the trial by Drysdale and colleagues corresponded to a nirsevimab efficacy of 83.2%. Furthermore, the efficacy and safety outcomes observed in this trial, which is being conducted in conditions approximating real-world settings, are consistent with findings from two previous Phase three trials. For more than 50 years, our options to prevent RSV disease have been largely ineffective or, as with the previous and current RSV prophylaxis products, have been limited to selected high-risk populations. The introduction of nirsevimab brings a wave of excitement because it offers a more practical, single-dose alternative to previous interventions and extends protection to all infants. Maternal vaccination is another recently introduced option to prevent RSV infection in infants. Therefore, finding a good balance between the two strategies will be necessary. Nirsevimab comes with new challenges alongside its benefits. As high-income countries begin to implement the administration of nirsevimab, active surveillance for RSV is critical in order to evaluate the effectiveness of nirsevimab and the evolution of RSV. Equally important are the five A's of healthcare access affordability, availability, accessibility, accommodation, and acceptability, especially in low and middle income countries where RSV associated morbidity and mortality are highest. Ensuring that nirsevimab reaches these vulnerable populations is not only a matter of equity, but also imperative to mitigate the global effects of RSV on health and society. Sparsentan versus Urbisartan in Focal Segmental Glomerulosclerosis by Michel Rowe from the University of Minnesota Medical School, Minneapolis. An unmet needs exists for focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, FSGS, treatment. In an eight-week phase two trial, sparsentan, a dual endothelin angiotensin receptor antagonist, reduced proteinuria in patients with FSGS. The current study evaluated the efficacy and safety of longer-term treatment with sparsentan for FSGS. 371 patients with FSGS without known secondary causes who were 8 to 75 years of age were randomly assigned to receive sparsentan or herbisartan, the active control, for 108 weeks. At 36 weeks, the percentage of patients with partial remission of proteinuria was 42% in the sparsentan group and 26% in the herbisartan group, a response that was sustained through 108 weeks. At the time of the final analysis at week 108, there were no significant between-group differences in the estimated glomerular filtration rate, EGFR, slope. The between-group difference in total slope, day 1 to week 108, was 0.3 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared of body surface area per year. And the between-group difference in the slope from week 6 to week 108, that is, chronic slope, was 0.9 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared per year. Sparsentan and herbisartan had similar safety profiles, and the frequency of adverse events was similar in the two groups. Among patients with FSGS, there were no significant between-group differences in EGFR slope 
at 108 weeks, despite a greater reduction in proteinuria with sparsentan than with herbisartan. Julie Inglefinger, deputy editor for the journal, writes in an editorial that the results of the carefully executed trial by Roe and colleagues did not achieve the goal of treatment with sparsentan to decrease the decline in estimated glomerular filtration rate, EGFR, as compared with herbisartan in patients with apparent primary FSGS. However, sparsentan did decrease proteinuria. Despite the care with which the trial was performed, and regardless of the use of the interim endpoint of FSGS partial remission, or other measures, the investigators and we, the readers, are left to grapple with why the decreased proteinuria did not result in amelioration of decline in kidney function. The authors provide multiple speculative reasons as to why the results for the primary endpoint, the EGFR slope, were not found to be significant. Perhaps two years is too little time to see a difference in EGFR decline in patients with FSGS. Other possibilities raised included the heterogeneity of the trial population. Most of the patients in the trial were white. A greater decrease in EGFR at the time of treatment initiation in the sparsentan group than in the herbisartan group, which would have meant stabilization or recovery was needed a better-than-anticipated response in the herbisartan group, the active control group, and the relapsing nature of FSGS. However, supportive data for such speculation are incomplete. In the end, does sparsentan offer another arrow in the small quiver of armaments with which to treat FSGS? It is a start. And one hopes that further observation of the trial participants in the ongoing open-label extension, plus additional studies aimed at answering the many questions the trial raises, will provide an answer. Restrictive or liberal transfusion strategy in myocardial infarction and anemia by Jeffrey Carson from Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, New Brunswick, New Jersey. A strategy of administering a transfusion only when the hemoglobin level falls below 7 or 8 grams per deciliter has been widely adopted. However, patients with acute myocardial infarction may benefit from a higher hemoglobin level. In this Phase three interventional trial, 3,504 patients with myocardial infarction and a hemoglobin level of less than 10 grams per deciliter were randomly assigned to a restrictive transfusion strategy, hemoglobin cutoff for transfusion, 7 or 8 grams per deciliter, or a liberal transfusion strategy, hemoglobin cutoff less than 10 grams per deciliter. The mean number of red cell units that were transfused was 0.7 in the restrictive strategy group and 2.5 in the liberal strategy group. The mean hemoglobin level was 1.3 to 1.6 grams per deciliter lower in the restrictive strategy group than in the liberal strategy group on days 1 to 3 after randomization. A primary outcome event of myocardial infarction or death at 30 days occurred in 16.9% of patients in the restrictive strategy group and in 14.5% of patients in the liberal strategy group. Death occurred in 9.9% of the patients with the restrictive strategy and in 8.3% of the patients with the liberal strategy. Myocardial infarction occurred in 8.5% and 7.2% of the patients respectively. 
In patients with acute myocardial infarction and anemia, a liberal transfusion strategy did not significantly reduce the risk of recurrent myocardial infarction or death at 30 days. However, potential harms of a restrictive transfusion strategy cannot be excluded. In an editorial, Evan Bloch and Aaron Tobian from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Baltimore, write that red cell transfusion is one of the most commonly performed medical procedures. It is also one of the most overused medical procedures, which largely neglects the associated risks, costs, and sustainability of liberal transfusion practices. In 1999, Hébert and colleagues published their findings from the landmark Transfusion Requirements in Critical Care trial results that challenged the then-standard practice of liberal transfusion. The trial showed that 30-day mortality among critically ill patients was not significantly different between those who had been assigned to a restrictive transfusion strategy and those who had been assigned to a liberal transfusion strategy. These findings spurred numerous trials, which collectively showed that a restrictive transfusion strategy was safe and consistently conferred clinical outcomes that were similar or even superior to those with a liberal strategy. These trials transformed clinical practice by offering moderate or high-quality evidence to support the wide adoption of a hemoglobin threshold of 7 to 8 grams per deciliter to trigger transfusion. Now, Carson and colleagues report the long-awaited findings from their trial. Their trial affords greater insight into the complexity of clinical transfusion practice. The findings underscore the need to consider multiple factors during evaluation of the patient, such as transfusion indication, clinical presentation, coexisting risk factors, and degree of compensation when deciding whether to administer a transfusion rather than rigidly adhere to a hemoglobin threshold alone. The trial also highlights the importance of characterizing risk in individual populations rather than relying on broad policy recommendations. Given the risk-benefit calculation for transfusion, at least in a high-income setting, in which the risk of transfusion-related adverse events is low, the findings from the trial by Carson and colleagues favor a liberal transfusion strategy for patients with acute myocardial infarction. Wearable Technology and Clinical Practice for Depressive Disorder, a review article by Shimon Ferdor from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Cambridge, and colleagues. Treatment of depression is based on evaluation for the presence and severity of symptoms. Depression is mostly diagnosed and monitored by means of interview-based assessments or self-report scales. Much of this information is subjective and shaped by the clinician's judgment. Hence, it is prone to various biases that may affect the quality of care. Self-report scales have been used to remotely monitor patients' symptoms between clinical visits. If these instruments are administered regularly, they can reduce retrospective bias. However, the burden on the patient can limit how frequently questionnaires are collected. Data from wearable technology may serve as a prompt to obtain details of a patient's life that might have otherwise been missed. Traditional clinical assessments depend on patient recall. 
Although such recall can include important factors that wearable technology, often termed wearables, do not detect, such as patients' reports of distress, the assessments by wearables of longitudinal data from daily life may augment methods of monitoring and treating depression, providing objective complements to subjective information from patients. Wearables enable passive monitoring, that is, monitoring without active input, of behavioral and physiological factors. The greater frequency and objectivity of wearable measurements help overcome some of the limitations of adherence and bias when depression is monitored exclusively with self-reports. Wearables support personalized approaches to depression treatment. Longitudinal measurements help establish patient-specific behavioral and physiological baselines and support identification of personalized factors that result in deviations from these norms. A clinician can use this ideographic, within-person information, along with more general nomothetic between-person evidence from randomized control trials to monitor condition changes and adjust the treatment plan for each patient. In this review, the authors describe the state of the art for using data from wearable devices in diagnosing and managing depression. A 70-year-old woman with cough and shortness of breath a case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Rajesh, Gandhi, and colleagues. A 70-year-old woman with advanced HIV infection was evaluated in a clinic in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa, because of cough, shortness of breath, and malaise. Twelve months earlier, the patient had new shortness of breath, cough, anorexia, and weight loss. During the subsequent four weeks, the symptoms progressively increased in severity. When the shortness of breath worsened to the extent that she was unable to walk, she sought evaluation at the clinic. Nucleic acid testing of a nasopharyngeal swab was positive for SARS-CoV-2. Subsequent testing was positive for M. tuberculosis. During the ensuing six months, the patient took antimycobacterial medications and the shortness of breath and cough decreased but still persisted. Four months before the current presentation, new headaches and mouth ulcers developed. Her ART regimen was changed, but the symptoms did not abate, and the patient presented to the clinic for additional evaluation. Given her markedly immunocompromised state, her physicians were concerned about the possibility of persistent SARS-CoV-2 infection. Genomic data from whole genome sequencing of residual specimens strongly pointed toward persistent SARS-CoV-2 infection with intra-host evolution. Persistent SARS-CoV-2 infection would also place this patient at risk for a superinfection that might explain the new onset of headaches. Superinfections that can occur after COVID-19 include fungal infections, such as aspergillosis or mucormycosis, which can lead to pneumonia or rhinoorbital cerebral disease. Treatment with intravenous amphotericin B for suspected aspergillosis was initiated. The IARC Perspective on Alcohol Reduction or Cessation and Cancer Risk by Susan Gapster from the International Agency for Research on Cancer, Lyon, France, and colleagues. Globally, ethanol, the principal form of alcohol in alcoholic beverages, is the most widely used psychoactive substance. 
In 2019, 44% of the global population 15 years of age or older had consumed alcohol in the previous year. The prevalence of alcohol consumption varies considerably according to geographic region, ranging from 4% in the World Health Organization WHO Eastern Mediterranean region to at least 60% in the European, American, and Western Pacific regions, and is higher among men than among women. The International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, classified alcoholic beverages as carcinogenic to humans on the basis of sufficient evidence of causality for oral, pharyngeal, laryngeal, esophageal, squamous cell, liver, hepatocellular, colorectal, and breast cancers. Ethanol in alcoholic beverages and acetaldehyde that is associated with consumption of alcoholic beverages are also classified as carcinogenic to humans. Worldwide, in 2020, an estimated 741,300 new cancer cases, 4.1% of all new cancer cases, were attributable to alcohol consumption. From February through May 2023, the IARC Handbooks of Cancer Prevention Program convened a working group of 15 scientists, all of whom are co-authors of this article, from eight countries to review published studies and qualitatively evaluate the strength of epidemiologic evidence on the potential for alcohol reduction or cessation to reduce alcohol-related cancer risk and of mechanistic evidence on the potential effects of alcohol reduction or cessation to reduce alcohol-related carcinogenesis. This report presents a summary and evaluation of the evidence. Community-based doulas. Can clinicians share power to improve maternal and infant health outcomes? A perspective by Dolly Presley Bird from the Mountain Area Health Education Center, Asheville, North Carolina, and colleagues. Black birthing people in the United States have higher rates of severe complications than white birthing people. Black birthing patients and infants are two to three times as likely as their white counterparts to die within a year after delivery, even after adjustment for education or socioeconomic factors. Our current perinatal care model is not working. We continue to focus on standardization and technology aimed at enhancing safety, while outcomes worsen and racial inequities increase. These authors believe we must reconsider the status quo and explore innovative solutions to this dire problem. One approach to addressing racial inequities in perinatal outcomes is to encourage partnerships between medical professionals, healthcare organizations, and community-based doulas. During the 18th and early 19th centuries, most black birthing people's deliveries were attended by grand midwives from their communities, whose lived experience was similar to their own. With the medicalization of childbirth and the shifting of births from the home to the hospital, the medical establishment began emphasizing the reduction of morbidity and mortality while pushing birthing patients' preferences and their chosen support systems to the margins. Healthcare teams that collaborate with doulas rightfully recenter patients' preferences for meaningful support while ensuring patient safety and agency. As trained non-clinical professionals, doulas provide physical, emotional, and educational support during the perinatal period while advocating for patients. 
Research shows that doula support reduces C-section rates, NICU admissions, and preterm births while increasing breastfeeding rates and patient satisfaction. Investment in collaborative relationships could help dismantle a rigid, hierarchical healthcare system that continually fails black birthing people. Data sharing, a new era for research funded by the U.S. government, a perspective by Joseph Ross from Yale School of Medicine, New Haven, Connecticut, and colleagues. In late January 2023, the new data management and sharing policy of the National Institutes of Health which requires researchers to share data that were generated with NIH support, went into effect. New proposals and competitive renewals for research grants must now include a data management and sharing plan that describes the data expected to be generated, associated metadata, timelines related to data preservation and access, and factors affecting distribution and reuse, as well as oversight arrangements and budgets for allowable costs. This policy, which was released in October 2020, was developed after many years of stakeholder engagement with the goal of maximizing the return on the public's investment in research. The Office of Science and Technology Policy, an advisory group within the Executive Office of the President, announced in August 2022 that federal agencies that fund research and development activities must update their public access policies to ensure that all scientific data resulting from federally funded research are, by default, made freely and publicly available at the time of publication. The potential effects of this shift in the clinical research enterprise toward data sharing are profound. There are clear opportunities ahead, but there is a need for a path forward to guide researchers. If these efforts are successful, every publicly funded project will have two equally important goals. First, to accomplish its research aims of collecting and analyzing data and reporting results to advance science. And second, to produce data that other investigators can use to replicate findings and produce new insights, thereby accelerating and maximizing the impact of U.S. government funding of science. Poet as Patient, a perspective by Richard Waring, a senior layout artist at The Journal. Richard was diagnosed with atrial flutter and a rapid heart rate of 150 beats per minute. Told he was in heart failure, Richard suddenly understood why he was having trouble breathing. Three sleepless hospital nights, alone in a dark room, he was offered a short-term rescue. 200 joules of electricity in the form of a cardioversion shocked his heart muscle back to a rate of 100 beats per minute. Over 12 days, two teams of doctors at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston debated whether Richard could undergo a second open-heart surgery after a bicuspid aortic valve repair in 2009, or whether he was eligible for a transcatheter aortic valve replacement, TAVR, procedure that was less risky, less invasive. A bout of endocarditis the previous summer added another layer of complexity to the decision-making. Ultimately, Richard was approved for the TAVR and sent home to wait for a procedure date. While in the hospital, Richard had managed to write a series of poems that seemed possible only in that setting, when one was near death. He shared his poems with the doctors to establish a rapport. 
Then Richard received a date for the Taver procedure. The procedure went smoothly, and Richard was not among the 2% who they warned could require emergency open-heart surgery or wind up dead. Going into the surgical suite, Richard was told he would be receiving a sapien bovine aortic valve, specially treated to block calcium buildup and potentially therefore last longer. He was discharged from the hospital 24 hours later. His heart muscle, on the other hand, having endured many ups and downs and partial entropy, can now rebuild its strength over the next few months. My heart and I have a heart-to-heart. Everything will be okay. In our images in clinical medicine, a 25-year-old woman with severe obesity presented with a one-week history of blurred vision, transient visual obscurations, daily headaches, and intermittent whooshing sounds. Neurologic examination revealed optic disc swelling in both eyes. MRI showed flattened posterior globes, an empty cella, and stenoses of the transverse sinuses without obstruction or thromboses, all of which were suggestive of elevated cerebrospinal fluid pressure. A lumbar puncture was notable for an elevated opening pressure of 55 centimeters of water. A diagnosis of idiopathic intracranial hypertension was made. Idiopathic intracranial hypertension is a disorder associated with obesity that manifests with symptoms resulting from increased intracranial pressure, including headaches, diplopia, visual field defects, and pulsatile tinnitus. Treatment with high-dose acetazolamide was started and counseling on weight loss was provided. In another image, a 70-year-old man received a diagnosis of localized sigmoid adenocarcinoma. After CT of the abdomen revealed cholidocolithiasis, dilatation of the common bile duct, and no distant metastases, plans had been made for laparoscopic tumor resection, cholecystectomy, and cholangioscopy. During the cholangioscopy, five large flatworms were seen wriggling in the biliary tract, See the video at nejm.org. Two worms were extracted and identified as Clonorchis sinensis, a type of liver fluke. C. sinensis is endemic in East Asia. Infection occurs as a result of eating raw or undercooked freshwater fish or shrimp. After larvae are ingested, they emerge from cysts in the duodenum, ascend the biliary tree, and mature into adult worms in the biliary tract, gallbladder, or liver. After the flatworms were removed, treatment with praziquantel was administered and adjuvant chemotherapy for sigmoid adenocarcinoma was initiated. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.